This is um, Jewish History Sound Bites with a Tisha B'Av episode. This is Yehuda Geber with um, Jewish History Sound Bites. And um, Rup Shleim Kalbach, he used to say that the hardest mitzvah for him, from all the mitzvahs to do around the whole year, is not saying hello to other people on Tisha B'Av. He said, you see a Yid in the street, how could you not say hello? And to be able to hold back and not say hello is quite uh, difficult. So the um, being have, have to do an episode without properly welcoming and without properly greeting um, anyone here in the audience or anyone who's going to listen afterwards um, is difficult. It's Tisha B'Av. And what I thought to do in this Tisha B'Av uh, episode is stories, stories of individuals, not of a history or an event, but rather a bunch of stories of individuals who went through cha- a tragedy or who went through a challenge or had a triumphant moment through a challenge. And this can help us internalize the Chorban and maybe draw inspiration to build further, to build towards the future. We have a kinna that we say on Tisha B'av about the Benu Bas Rabbi Shmuel, about the children of Rabbi Shmuel Kain Gadol. And this kinna focuses on the story of two individuals. Most of the kinnas talk about the Beis Hamikdash, talk about this event, that event, this aspect, that focus. And here, one kinna, which is also of Rabbi Lazar HaKaler, the same one who writes all the other kinnas, most of the other kinnas, it's about two people, one family, the children of Rabbi Shemal Kayin Gadol, and what happened to them when they're taken captive, and a whole story about how they finally recognize each other, and uh, they lose their lives together in a very poignant scene, in a very tragic scene, but it's a story about people, and uh, that, I think, is somehow easier for us to connect to when it's a story about an individual person, when it's about a specific person. So I want to try to share a few stories um, from throughout Jewish history. A few weeks ago, I was sitting with the Mashkiach of the Mir Yeshiva, Rebaran Chadash. He should live and be well. And he was telling me about his mother. His mother was the daughter of the Eishi Shakarov, or base of Zundel Hutner. And his, his mother was married to his father, Rameir Chadash, before the Hebron massacre. His father um, was in the Hebron Yeshiva, Rameir Chadash. His mother, Tzivia Hutner, was the niece of the Rosh Yeshiva, Rameir Mordechai Epstein. And they got married and they settled down in Hebron. The Mashkiach is actually named Aaron David after one of the boys who was killed in the Hebron massacre. His cousin, Rabbi Shemotcha Epstein's nephew, who was the son of a Rav in Chicago, Rabbi Shemotcha Epstein's brother, Ephraim Epstein, he had a son, Aaron David, who was learning in the Hebron yeshiva during the massacre and um, was killed, and the Mashkiach is named after him. And his mother goes through the massacre. And... A few years later, Amir Chadash is a rising star. He's a Talmud of the Altar of Slabatka, and he gets an offer to go back to Poland in the 1930s, about 1936, 1937, when no one expects anything on the horizon. 
And there's a yeshiva in the in Warsaw, a Litvish yeshiva in Warsaw called Tyras Chaim. And it was run by Reb Hirsch Glickson. And one of the Rebbeim there was a Ravram Meir Finkel, the son of Reb Lezi Yudel. And they were trying to beef up the staff. And they wanted to bring Reb Meir Chadash in to be on the administration of the yeshiva, to be a mashkiach, to be a rebbe, whatever it was, of the Tyras Chaim yeshiva in Warsaw. And he got pressure from Reb Lezi Yudel Finkel and other people to move back to, um, to Poland. I'm sorry, it was not in 1937, it was in 1933, excuse me, I mistakenly said the wrong year there. And she had gone back to, to Poland-Lithuania to visit her family in Aishishok. She actually had cousins in Warsaw, and she might have been comfortable there uh, with her husband's new position. It was a prestigious position where they were now, just several years earlier, they had survived the Hebron Massacre, they had moved to Yerushalayim, there wasn't much for them there. And uh, here they were getting seemingly the greatest offer possible. Warsaw, the capital of the Jewish world, not backwater, small town Yerushalayim, which it was in those days, and their harrowing escape from the Hebron Massacre and the trauma they had experienced. They could go back to the center of Jewish life, to Warsaw, where she had family, where her husband would get a well-paying and prestigious position and an impressive yeshiva. She would be not far from her parents in Aishishok. And she's visiting her parents. And she met with several, the Meshgiach told me, she met with several G'dayle Yisrael. He didn't remember which ones. Several of the, uh, the top-line G'daylem of those times who tried to convince her to allow her husband to move back to Warsaw. And she told them, I signed a treaty in blood with the land of Israel. She said, let me tell you what happened a few years ago. During the massacre, which happened right near Tishabov, actually, it was Chai Av, it's the 90th anniversary just next week. She said, I was in a room where people were, had been killed. The Arabs had come in and I was hiding underneath the dead body of someone. And the blood was all over me. And I played dead. And the Arabs came in again. And they saw the body on top of me, which was dead. And the blood all over. And they left me for dead. And that's how I was saved. He said, I signed, he said in Hebrew, a brit dam, a contract, a treaty, signed in blood with the Holy Land, with, the, with Eretz Yisrael. And therefore, there's no way I'm going to leave it. My connection to Eretz Yisrael has been signed in blood, and I'm not leaving, no matter how good the offer is. And his mother stayed. And that's what happened. And she turned down this great offer. Because she was still so far from her family in Aishishak, she eventually gets them visas and immigration certificates to leave Aishishak and come to Eretz Yisrael. So they join her there later on in the 1930s. And a couple of years later, the war breaks out. Everyone in Warsaw gets sent to Treblinka, including everyone from the Tyrus Chaim Yeshiva. And there they are, they're saved. So there is a, a very powerful story about uh, both the tragedy of the 1929 massacre, the challenges of settling in Eretz Yisrael for this family, the questions, the doubts about whether they should move back, and ultimately the destruction of Polish Jewry, which she eventually, with her family, was saved from because of her conviction that this is what she needs to do. Another major tragedy in Jewish history, um, a very sad 
era into the Russian Empire the Cantonist decree. Tsar Nikolai I, he made a decree, uh, a draft law to draft Jews, also non-Jews, a draft law into the Russian army, but specifically for the Jewish population it was very difficult because of um, the, the way the draft law was implemented by Tsar Nikolai was that the Jewish community had to provide a quota of a certain amount of boys to the army. And this created a very sticky situation because the leaders of the community were held accountable. It wasn't each draftee was held accountable. It's that the leaders of the community were required to hand over a certain amount of boys. And this created a very tragic era, about 30 years long in the history of the Jewish people, one of the saddest, that, that young boys are snatched off the streets, sometimes by fellow Jews and handed over to the Russian police sometimes by the Tsarist police themselves. They're taken into the Russian army for 25 years. They're taken from young ages, sometimes as young as 8 or 10 years old, sometimes from 12 years old. They go through a several years of training in which they're tried, they try to indoctrinate them and convert them to the Russian Orthodox Church in addition to serving in the army. And they're cut off from Jewish communities, young boys. And most of them, when they came out, if they came out alive and healthy, they definitely had no longer had any connection to Judaism. You're allowed to live, you're privileged to be allowed to live outside of the pale of settlement once you served in the Russian army. So they settled down in non-Jewish cities and communities in the Russian Empire, and they lost all connection they had to the Jewish people. And who knows how many people we lost in such a fashion. So that was the Cantonist. The Chavetz Chaim lived at the time of the Cantonist decrees, and he did made tremendous efforts to try to bring them back. And there's actually a beautiful story. He once was traveling. He used to travel a lot to sell his farm. That's how he made a living. And he was in an inn, and he saw a very boorish man uh, eating like a real slob, a real vulgar personality, a very, um, very not, a, not, not someone who's socially very attractive. He was very gruff and um, definitely like acted and looked like a Russian peasant, cursed like a Russian peasant, nothing Jewish about him at all. And he made quite a scene yelling at the waiter to bring him more vodka and bring him more this and making his demands. A very gruff personality, definitely not, not, not seemingly not Jewish at all. And the head of the inn notices that the Chavetz Chaim is taking note of this person, and the head of the inn, who is a Jewish owner, comes over to the Chavetz Chaim and says, I want you to know, this, this person is a, is a Nebach. He's, a, he's really a Jew, and he was a Cantonist. He was taken away as a young child, and, um, and, he, and, he, uh, and he was taken to the Russian army for 25 years. And the Chavetz Chaim says, how do you know that? He says, well, he, he admits that he's a Jew. He, he's known as a Jew, and he uh, doesn't deny it. And look how he is, look how he behaves, look how he acts, he has no connection whatsoever. So the Chavetz Chaim, a great compassionate leader, he goes over to this person and he sits down at his table. This guy sees this distinguished looking Yid, comes, sits down at his table and he says, what do you want? And he says, I want to tell you that I'm jealous of you. He says, why are you jealous? Well, what do you mean? What did I do? He said, I heard that you were drafted as a young boy into the Russian army, and you're still Jewish. You didn't convert to the Russian Orthodox Church. You didn't renounce your ties to the Jewish people. That's amazing. You're still a Yid. You're still Jewish. 
all the pressure that they put you under and the tortures and the social pressure and the being cut off from any Jewish community and anything that you had and you still consider yourself Jewish and you didn't convert, you're not sitting in the church, in the Russian Orthodox Church, you're still identifying as a Jew, I'm jealous of you. And the guy breaks down crying and he says, this is the first time another Jew has appreciated what I went through and appreciated me for who I am. And in this way, the Chavetz Chaim was able to bring him back. Because that dark period of time, when they were literally uh, driven outside of the Jewish people by their circumstances, and to be able to still feel connected like that, Chavetz Chaim once heard that there was a new, uh, a new decree by the Russian Tsar that even former uh, soldiers of the Russian army are not allowed to live in Moscow. They're supposed to be allowed to live in Moscow. They had served in the army. It's outside the Pale of Settlement. It's a crown city. And he heard that all Jews were kicked out of Moscow, even completely assimilated Jews who had served in the Russian army. And they are, but they could stay in Moscow if they officially convert to the church. And many of them left Moscow. And the Chavetz Chaim said, we learned something new today. We thought that these Jews were completely cut off from the Jewish people and they don't have the shame Yisrael anymore and, and, and they're removed from the Jewish people. They're just like a guy. And it turns out that they have a strong Jewish connection. They surprised us. They still have a connection to the Jewish people. He wrote a sefer, Machne Yisrael, for people, Jews in, then it was in the Russian army, but it's used by Jews in many armies, to teach them, to give them chizuk, to teach them the halachas, how could they could keep at least a minimum of Yiddishkeit even in, in the Russian army. And that was the period of the Cantonists. And of course, if we're speaking about individuals, and especially young individuals, there's a story that I heard personally from the Tzanzer Rebbe, the current Tzanzer Rebbe, and, uh, who, in Netanya. I heard this story from him. He came to be Menachem Avel Rebbe Yashiv when he lost his daughter, of Israel Orbach's wife. And I was being Menachem Avel, uh, Rebbe Yashiv's son, who I know, and I happened to be there at the same time as the Tzanzer Rebbe came in. And he said the story to Rabbi Yashir. Rabbi Yashir was basically deaf at the end of his life, so he had to shout and yell to, to make sure that he hears you. So the Tzanzer Rebbe was yelling this story. So I know I didn't miss a word of this story because he was yelling so loud I could hear every single word. And he said a story about his great-great-grandfather, the Divrei Chaim of Tzanz, Rabbi Chaim, the, Tzanz, the first Tzanzer Rebbe. The first Tzanzer Rebbe had many children, but one of them... I think more than one of them, at least one of them died in his lifetime. And he was able to continue. A tremendous tragedy. It's pretty much the worst tragedy that a parent can experience is losing a child, a child dying in their own lifetime, a young child with promise and potential, and they died. And he was able to somehow get out of it and, and, and still lead his community and still be in good cheer. And people were amazed at the strength of character and the inner spirit and strength that the Divrechaim had after suffering such a personal tragedy and loss. And they asked him, how are you able to do it? And the Rechaim said, I'll tell you a mashal. I was once walking in the streets of Tzanz. I was going from my house to the Shtibel, to Davin. And all of a sudden I get a whack on my back. And it hurt. It was very painful. So I turn around and I'm looking, who's giving me such pain? Who's giving me this whack on the back? And I turn around and I see it's Yankel, my friend. My friend Yankel, and when Yankel says hello, he's one of the boisterous types that gives a big whack on the back when he says hello. But it's just Yankel saying hello. 
So all of a sudden it didn't hurt anymore so much because the uncle saying hello doesn't hurt. He said, that's what happened. I was walking through the streets of Tzams and I got a whack on the back. My child was ki- died. My child was taken away from me. And it was a whack that hurt so much. It was so painful. And I turned around to look, who's giving me such pain? Who took away my child and is giving me such pain? Who gave me this whack on the back? And I turned around and I saw it was the Rabbeinu Shalom. And the Rabbeinu Shalom was saying hello. And sometimes when he says hello, it hurts. We don't know why. But sometimes he says hello in a way that it hurts. And I said, ah, Rabbeinu Shalom saying hello. That's not so painful. He's saying hello. He's there. He's saying hello. And that's how I was able to get out of it. And if we're on the topic of lost children, it reminds me of the story that recently I was in Ishbitz. And every time I go to Ishbitz, I'm very moved by this story. I was there with a group. And when you go to Ishbitz, really what the group is going for is to be by the Meishi Loyach, to be by the Helig Ishbitzer's Kever. And right near there, there's another story that, that's almost as powerful as davening by the Meishi Loyach. There's a Matseva in the Jewish cemetery in Ishbitz that says on it that this is the Matseva of someone named Father Gregor Pavlovsky, Yaakov Tzvi Greiner. Two names. As it happens, I happen to know, after researching the story, that this person is not even buried there. He's still alive. But he wants to be buried there one day. And right beyond this matseva of someone who's not buried there is a mass grave of Jews from Zamush and Ishbitz, Zamush is right nearby, that they were killed there by the Nazis during the war. And the story of this boy, this Gregor Pavlovsky, he was a Jewish child named Yaakov Tzvi Greiner, and as a young child, he was hidden by his parents, and his parents and the rest of his family, most of the rest of his family, one other brother escaped also. And they're killed in this mass grave in Ishbitz, and he was hidden. And he eventually adopts a Polish identity, and he becomes a priest. And he, his name is Gregor Pavlovsky. But he's confused. Who is he? Is he really a priest, a Catholic, Polish Catholic, or is he really a Jew? And he's still, today, in his 90s, grappling with this double identity. Who is he? He eventually decides to somehow live with his double identity by living as a priest, serving God. In his eyes, he's serving God, but living amongst the Jewish people, and he's serving the Catholic community in Israel. And he had moved to Israel many decades ago. He lives in Yafo, I think, but he's still a Jew. He's living amongst the Jewish people, but he's a priest. And he decides that he wants to be buried there. He wants to be buried near his parents where they were killed because he's never able to resolve this identity. He's going to be buried in a Jewish cemetery as Father Gregor Pavlovsky and as Yaakov Tzvi Greiner. And there's many children like that. David Kahana, Rabbi, Rabbi Dr. David Kahana, who was a Rav in Poland before the war, right after the war, he moved to Israel, he was a Rav in South America. He relates how right after the war, when he was in Lvov, he was looking for a Jewish child that he happened to know for sure was hidden in a certain home. And this wasn't Stam a Jewish child. Or Baruch Halberstam was the Zaklikover Rav. He was an of the Rechaim. And his wife was a daughter of the Chabina Rav, or Baruch Dave Barish Weidenfeld. I think I got his name right. The Chabina Rav, who lived in Yerushalayim. So this child was a child of this couple. The couple was killed by the Nazis during the war. And the child was hidden by a Polish Catholic. So this child. On one side, he's a Halberstam, the child of the Zaklakov Rav. On the other side, he's a grandchild of the Chabina Rav, 
and he's being raised as a Catholic. And he tried tracking down the child, and he couldn't find him, and at some point he gave up. And he said, and he finishes off the story when he writes it in the book, it is off somewhere there in Poland, the Anical of the Chabinarov is a Catholic Pole right now, and who knows how many other children are like that. One of those children was rescued, and she tells her story. She's also still alive. She lives in Israel. And she was raised as Irena Jablonska by a Polish couple. And this Polish couple was willing to give her up back to her relative who came to claim her. But Irena didn't want to go. Her parents didn't come to claim her. They were killed. And some obscure relative came to take her back after the war, after she had been hidden. And she's the one who didn't want to go back. But the, her adoptive parents said, you belong to the Jewish people, you have to go back. And this obscure relative took her back. And she took with her a Catholic prayer book with her from her adoptive parents' home. And she considered herself a Catholic Polish girl who had been kidnapped now by Jews because her identity was Polish. And every night she'd kneel on the floor and take out this prayer book and pray to Jesus to rescue her from her Jewish kidnappers. And she describes this, and I heard her testimony recently, as, as the ultimate identity crisis. This is the crisis of a child who doesn't know who they are. Where do they belong? Are they part of the Jewish people? Who are they? Where are they parents? What's going on? What does this exile of Jewish identity mean? And it comes down in this individual. But what does it all come to? Why should I be a Jew? Why should I be part of this destiny? She asks, who are my parents? They say, well, they were killed for being Jews. So she says, so why should I rejoin the Jewish people? I don't want to be killed. Well, she resolved her identity, and by now she lives in Israel. She's, she's, uh, she's okay. She's returned to the Jewish people. But it's not a simple return. The, of course, you have to think of past the tragedy and the triumph. You have to think of of building to the future. And there's a beautiful story that I, that I like to say over at the end of trips usually about a Sefer Torah. It's a story about a Sefer Torah, but it really is a story about the Jewish people. There was a Sefer Torah in the Warsaw Ghetto that was in one of the shuls. And um, this Sefer Torah, during the uprising, the, the Nazis burned down systematically the entire ghetto, building by building, block by block. And uh, there's a burning building, and a gabai, or a regular member of a shul, the, the shul was trying to rescue the Sefer Torah. Now, the Nazis knew that the burning buildings is going to smoke people out of the bunkers. So they're waiting with snipers near the burning buildings. And this fellow is rescuing the Sefer Torah, and he's holding the Sefer Torah in front of him, and he's trying to run out of the building, the burning building, across the street to another block, and the Sefer Torah is in front of him, and a sniper a Nazi sniper sees him and shoots him from behind. He's shot from behind, so he falls forward in the middle of the street in the flaming Warsaw Ghetto. And uh, he falls forward, he falls on top of the Sefer Torah. And his blood goes soaking into the Sefer Torah. The collapsing buildings bury him under the rubble. And after the war, some survivors in Warsaw who are digging up the rubble of the Warsaw Ghetto discover this body, discover the Sefer Torah, the blood-soaked Sefer Torah. And they hold it there on the side, the last few remnants of Jews in Warsaw. One of the few G'dayli Yisrael who went to visit the shattered survivors in Poland after the war 
was the chief rabbi of Eretz Yisrael at the time. Before the state, it was still the British Palestine. Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac Halevi Herzog. There were many leaders and rabbanim and other people who visited the displaced persons camps in Germany. But Rav Herzog was one of the only ones who went back to Poland itself to visit the shattered remnants of where it was really destroyed, of where the centers of Jewish life were destroyed. And he went on this tour of Poland for several months in 1946 to give chizik to the remaining survivors and to try to inspire them, to try to give them some, some strength and some just to be there with them. And they made a reception for him in Lodge when he in Warsaw, excuse me, when he was about to leave. I referenced it in another episode, Maisha Kisovitsky, the Chazan in Warsaw, who had spent the war years in the Soviet Union, was there at this reception. This reception was videoed, you could find a clip of it online. Of Herzog, Kisovitsky singing Kelmole for the Jews of Warsaw who had been killed, a very, very moving and powerful uh, video. And you also see the Sefer Torah. The remnants of Warsaw Jewish community decided to give this Sefer Torah that I mentioned to Rav Herzog as a gift. And it was a very symbolic gift because they wrote a letter explaining their gift. They write on this letter, the Jewish community of Poland was the dominant Jewish community in the Jewish world for hundreds of years. And what the Jewish community of Poland produced for Kal Yisrael, produced for the Jewish people, in a spiritual sense, in a physical sense, in a cultural sense. Yeshivas, chasidus, communities, leaders, rabbis, ideas, sfarim. The, the wealth, the spiritual wealth of the Jewish world has been enriched till today by Polish Jewry. It's is hard, hard to exaggerate. And we see now with the last destruction, the last churban, we see that the chapter of Polish Jewry has come to a devastating end. And we see, and this is said in 1946, in the shattered ruins of Warsaw, and we see that the future of the Jewish people, the next chapter, is going to be written in Eretz Yisrael. That's where the central Jewish community is going to be from now on. So we, the last Polish Jews, want to hand over and pass the torch to the Jewish community of Eretz Yisrael. And you, the chief rabbi, Rav Herzog, are representing the Jewish community of Eretz Yisrael. So we the last representatives of Polish Jewry, are handing over the torch to you, the next stop in the Gullus, and hopefully the last one of the Jewish community of Israel. And to make that handing of the torch concrete, we're going to hand you over a Sefer Torah, because a Sefer Torah is always the central identity of the Jewish people, but it's not just any Sefer Torah. It's a Sefer Torah that's soaked with the blood of Polish Jewry. And in that symbolism, you're going to take the Sefer Torah back with Polish Jewry soaked up inside and go build the next chapter of Jewish life in Eretz Yisrael. These are all things from the past. I'll end off with one last story from the present times. It's hard for us sometimes to relate to stories from the past because they're so distant, they're far. We're not faced with challenges of being drafted into the Tsar's army or about being killed in the Holocaust. We live a privileged life, thank God. We don't have a lot of these terrible Nisayanists, but we have day-to-day challenges, and there's no shortage of problems and challenges and tragedies that people face. So I want to tell you something that I was an eyewitness to on one of the trips I did. And it was a trip that we took families along. We were in the Ukraine, and we were in Mezhibizh by the Balshemtiv, 
a couple of years ago. And I happened to know that one of the couples on the trip, they wanted to enjoy the trip as well, but I knew from my knowledge of this couple from beforehand that this couple was facing a fertility issue and they had problems the last few years having a child and they very much wanted a child. Of course, I always tell everyone in the group before any tzaddik, any grave that we go to, that any challenge that we face in life, the places to daven, the places that we can connect to, and the places to pour out our hearts. We're in a long gullus, and everyone has their challenges. And these great tzaddikim, it's a holy place to daven. So this, they're davening, and they're crying, and, I, and I'm watching off to the side. I'm uh, you know, looking at my watch to see when we have to go to the next stop, and making sure everything's running on schedule. And, and uh, I'm letting everyone have their moment there. And of course, Mezhebizh is a busy place. There's lots of other groups. And there's uh, another Yid there watching this person cry. And I watch him approach this, this crying member of my group. And he says to him, are you davening for children? And he says, yeah, how do you know? He says, I don't know. It seemed like you were. It seemed like you're davening with your wife. I figured you're davening for children. He says, I want to tell you something. We're here in Mezhebizh. We're here by the Baal Shem Tev. We're all part of the Jewish people. And we often forget that we're all part of the Jewish people. But we're all one unit. We're all part of the Jewish people. And he's talking to him in Hebrew. He's an Israeli. And then he switches to Yiddish. And he says, we're all Yiddish abrida. We're all Jewish brothers together. So if you're carrying a weight on your shoulders, you're carrying a challenge, you're carrying a hardship, we're all in this together. We're all davening for you together. This is from a total stranger that he just met next to the Baal Shem Tov's kever. And hopefully Hashem will answer your prayers, will answer your tefillahs. And the guy goes on davening. And a year later, almost to the day, I can't say it was almost exactly, it was exactly to the day, it was almost to the day, I was privileged to attend the bris of the fellow who was davening by the kever, by the Baal Shem Tov. So there's another good ending to a story, which is always important to end uh, with a good ending. And hopefully we get chizik from these stories, facing the different challenges and tragedies and hardships in the Gullahs, but we're always going to be triumphant and we're always going to come out and hopefully we'll come to the ultimate gu'ul of this Tisha B'Av. Thank you for listening. Jewish History Soundbites with Yehuda Gabra.